Good morning. Welcome to episode six of the Maryland Bike Club's Coaches Corner. I'm Alex Spraggs, race director of the Maryland Bike Club, and with me as always is Paul Moffat, owner of philosophy.ca and cycling coach to the Maryland Bike Club. How are you doing this morning, Paul? I'm doing great. Thanks, Alex. Fresh as a daisy. <laughs> uh, that, makes, that makes one of us so far, anyway. Uh, and with us this week, we have another guest, Loma, on the pod today, Merrick Dukowitz. How are you doing this morning, Merrick? I'm doing very well, sporting my Meraloma hat, so I'm feeling really peachy. Uh, looking sharp. Today we're going to talk about incorporating strength and other endurance sports into your cycling training. And we're also going to talk about um, what signs we should look for that should indicate to us that we need to take, uh, that we need to focus on making sure we're rest and recovered and maybe dial back our training a little bit. Um, and finally, we'll chat with Merrick about his Grand Fondo experiences and how to strategize to get the best Fondo time possible. So, yeah, Paul, let's start out with incorporating strength training. Um, if, if, if you're a cyclist, I think it's important to get strength training, but how, how should we do that safely and while still maximizing our cycling training um, uh, effects? Awesome. Yeah. Um let's let's get stuck into that by the way great questions this week we could probably do a show on each one of these so i want to just stick to the key points the most important ones and i'm sure that will lead to um, further questions down the line um, strength training is really uh useful and, and, and a good tool to incorporate into your cycling but it requires a little bit of careful balance so there should be phases in your training throughout the year, the off season, the peak season, and kind of the transition season as you're coming out from one into the other, right? So ideally, your strength training starts in the off season, which will um, help your body adapt. And when it's in the off season, it, it, it's not as critical um, that, that it's so well balanced. In other words, strength training can uh, end up fatiguing your legs quite a lot and it can upset your training balance. So in the off season where your training's reduced a little bit, it can be time for you to really hone in on uh, nailing your strength. We'll talk about the foundations or foundation exercises you should be focusing on. Um, and allows you to kind of build your strength as you go. So if you're experiencing sore legs from training, et cetera, et cetera, it's not such a big deal because you're doing a lot more base miles. Starting your training now during the peak season is a little bit more um, of a balancing act. Um, you need to be a little bit more careful because it can interrupt your uh, training and leave your legs a little bit more fatigued. So um, before we get into the exercises themselves, um, Think about training days. So for now, uh, it wouldn't necessarily be beneficial to do more than two strength training sessions a week, especially if you already have about two or three good um, challenging cycling workouts a week. And I would split them up into two days. I would do an upper body and a core day and a lower body and accessories day, which could be some more core work or it could be um, things that you want to work on, like your guns, do the biceps and triceps, et cetera, just stuff that's not really going to interfere with it. So when it comes to upper body stuff, you kind of have a la carte because it's not going to interfere with the cycling itself. It's, it may cause some uh, systematic fatigue like throughout your body, but it's not going to leave your legs um, 
uh, gutted for, for cycling training essentially. So that I often will have my upper body day just before a high intensity uh, cycling day or after, because I know they're not going inter to interfere with each other. Whereas my leg day, I'm going to either do that before a kind of a base miles ride. So if I do a lot of big zone one rides on the weekend, I know I can do that a day or two before uh, that ride or directly after it. Because on those days, I'm not putting out high power. I'm not looking to do climbing. I'm just doing a lower intensity but long duration ride. So it's okay for me to go into that with maybe slightly fatigued legs. Um, so that really depends on on the rider and their schedule, how that's going to work. Um, some people prefer to get their leg training in early in the week and some people prefer to get it in just before the weekend, before the long duration ride. So we're not really going to worry about that. All I'm going to recommend is that you space things out. Just like our theme in the last few weeks is, you want to balance training and fatigue. The goal isn't to take heavy legs into training. And that's not necessarily a good indication that your training is working. That's been a repeated theme now. So let's move on to the types of exercises you can use. So um, now the fitness industry is full of uh, workouts and stuff for you to do. But I would say that there's only a small percentage that you really need um, to become a, a better cyclist. Uh, every fitness guru, men's health or women's health fitness thing has got like the best five exercise for cyclists. Now, my issue is that most of those are developed by personal trainers who have no cycling experience. And if you're a track cyclist, I'm going to give you a completely different weight training program to someone who's training for fondos or someone who's a triathlete or someone who's you know, there's all these uh, factors to take into it. So there isn't one best exercise for a cyclist. However, there are some foundation exercises that all cyclists can do that will not only improve your cycling, but just improve your day-to-day -day functioning. Um, basically stuff that we should all, movements that we should all um, have inherently in us. And one would be a full range squat, right? So being able to maintain a nice neutral spine where your spine is fairly upright and when you do your squat, you're not leaning forward too much. It's just having a nice natural uh, deviation to it and that you're able to get your hips um, underneath your knees. In other words, your thighs get at least a parallel or deeper. So before you go adding lots of weight in, assess the quality of your squat. Are you able to get that range? If you can't get that range yet and you're not able to get parallel or deeper that's where you could spend some really useful time is uh doing some mobility work following with stretching and things like that um, before your workouts to see if you can improve that range of motion because if you can't get that deep you're not going to be able to access all the muscles you want for your cycling so that's some nice low-hanging fruit it's uh if that's the stage you're at then that's not going to impede your cycling too much if you focus a lot of time there. So you could do that multiple times a week. So let's say you've moved past that phase and you have good range of motion. You're not super tight. Um, I know most of us are. We all have tight hip flexors and tight hammies and tight glutes from all the cycling you're doing. But let's say you've moved past that phase. You've got good range of motion. A good squat is important. Go easy on the weights at first. And if it's this time of season, Focus on a higher rep range and don't train to failure. So often um, when you come from a weight training background, um, a 
PT or a weight training coach will teach you how to train to failure. So eight to 12 rep range, let's say they're using, which would be considered a hypertrophy uh, weight range. They'd get you to do your first set till you felt like you have one or two reps. So let's say you were getting close to failure around nine reps. Second set, they would probably get you to match that. You could hit nine, but you're starting to struggle. And then on your third set, they train you to failure where you can't get the bar off your chest uh, or you can't get the bar up by yourself necessarily or you're really struggling to get it up. That would be your point of failure. This time of season, there's not much value to training like that because you're just going to dig yourself a deep hole and you're not going to have any fun getting back on your bike, especially if it's your first weight training session. So we'll talk about that as well because you've got to be careful of something called DOMS. So I would focus more on a rep range that's high, say 10 to 15, where the quality of the movement is really high. So your squats are controlled. You can go down nice and slow and you don't lose any balance. You're symmetrical. In other words, there's no twisting or shifting your weight to one leg. That would be something to really address. So that's your squat taken care of. Then you want a hip hinge movement like a deadlift or a good morning where you're bending from the hips and you're able to keep your spine flat. Deadlifts are great for this, but uh, it takes a while for new uh, weight training participants to really le learn that movement properly where they're using their glutes. So that one would be very important that you have a good hamstring flexibility and that you're able to keep your weight on your heels. In fact, with squatting as well, we want to use your heels in that one too. So if you notice that your heels are coming up off the ground um, because you don't have good calf flexibility, you can put a little block underneath your heel, which will it, you'll notice right away your, your depth changes immediately because um, often if you have tight calves or tight ankles, that will limit your squats quite a lot. So that's like a little hack around that one. Okay, so we've got a squat movement, we've got a deadlift movement, so that's gonna work your posterior chain. Um, then you wanna do either a unilateral exercise or a single, single leg exercise. So what that means is something where you're separating left and right a little bit. So for example, a lunge, that would be separate loading left and right, they're doing different tasks, and then you check it out on the other side. Again, symmetry is important. You want the, the, the movements to look the same on both legs and you want the number of reps to be the same. So the first thing to do when you're doing single leg or unilateral exercises, establish your weaker leg. That one will... Sorry about that. So yeah, once you find your weaker leg, um, let that determine the reps for both sides. There's no point in making a strong side stronger. We want the weaker side to catch up. And often if you, if you do catch a weaker side and you also see asymmetries in your squats, like you're twisting to one side, leaning to one side, this will help potentially to, um, to even those asymmetries out there as well. Um, so if I can only do six on my left, but I could do more on my right, then I do six on both sides, irrespective. You don't need to train that right side any, any harder. It's gonna be more maintenance for the strong side and development on the left side. Um, now I like to maximize my time when I do workouts. So I usually only do three or four uh, um, leg, leg exercises, but to get more out of the day, I'll complement it with some um, core exercises in between to, um, during the rest periods to maximize my workout time. So I'll do one set of squats, I'll do one set of planks and go 
go back and forth until I've done three sets of each. Um, so planking movements are great, side planks. Um, don't worry about doing crunches because for most of our cyclists, we spend far too much time in that flex position with our shoulders around us. So we actually want to spend time on your upper body stuff doing the opposite. So another exercise you may want to do, which most people don't think of as a core exercise, but it's going to help your postural muscles, would be things like a rocket man. So where you're lying face down on your belly button, and then you pick your head up. So from the side, it would look like this. So imagine my floor is here. I'm going to pull my head back. I'm going to lift my shoulders off the ground and pinch my shoulder blades and pull, the, pull my hands back. So my hands are doing this movement and I'm swinging back. From the top, it looks like you're making a rocket man uh, sort of shape with your body. So just a handful of those. It's not to, it's not to train to failure, just like anything else, just to get the, your back stimulated and undo some of the stuff that you're, you're doing, um, uh, working at the desk and cycling all the time. So then for upper body, um, and then we'll move swiftly on, my basic principles are I don't give you too much detail. Uh, you do the exercises that are fun and you enjoy, but equal out your pulling and your pushing movements, right? For cyclists, especially, most of your um, anterior muscle groups are short and tight. Rounded shoulders, tight, tight abs, tight core. Doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're strong. They could be weak and tight as well. Um, but we need to undo that, right? So spending at least as much time doing pulling movements like rows, some pull-ups, uh, anything that's gonna pull your shoulders back and retract will help undo some of those things that we're getting between working sedentary jobs and riding on your bicycle. So um, yeah, like I said, dumbbell rows, uh, barbell rows, working various angles. If you're out of gym and you have cable machines, there's tons of variations you can do there. For pushing exercise, nothing beats a good push-up. If you have a great push-up, that's a super functional movement. Uh, I used to think that the bench press was the be-all and end-all. Uh, it pales in comparison to a good weighted push-up. Um, not to say that if you enjoy doing bench press, go for it, for sure. Uh, but having the basics of a, a, a push-up has now become uh, one of the key elements in a fitness screen. So it basically depicts natural functional movement so we should all be able to pick ourselves up off the ground essentially <laughs> um yeah and then a nice shoulder press so the other thing i like to use my exercise for and then we'll, we'll kind of like uh stop the segment here is they help me to see what condition my body is in so i like to do a shoulder press where you have your uh, arm in front of your body not off to the side and not at an angle and i'm just very strict and i like to just do a nice strict press with a, a light weight and You'd be surprised how hard it is to do um, a lightweight for high repetitions, keeping your elbow facing a wall in front of you. And what you'll find is it will illuminate all your tightnesses. So if you find like your head is moving to your ear, it's often tightness or at least dominant uh, trap muscles. Or if you get to here and you can't extend your elbow properly, you could have tight traps, tight lats, or tight chest muscles. So it can direct your uh, mobility work by just doing some functional uh, movements. And that's one of the things I use with my clients is the squat and the deadlift to see where they're tight. If someone's complaining about their back when we do an easy deadlift, 
um, and they're rounding out their back, I know that they've probably got tight hamstrings. So we'll go back, have a look at that, stretch them out. And if their movement improves afterwards, that's where our uh, time should be spent. Okay. All right, so that's a lot of information at once. Should we move on to the next topic? Yeah, sure. Um, and, and yeah, if, if anyone wants um, to go in deeper into that, send your questions this way and we can, we can open up, uh, unpack one of those a little more deeply. But <clears throat> for now, let's, let's move on and, and talk about uh, getting other endurance training into our work. So we're uh, generally, I think, for cyclists, oftentimes we sometimes like to run or maybe swim hopefully not all three because that would make you a triathlete and yeah. i don't like those more cyclists so the different club for that yeah <laughs> but yeah so okay. how, how do we how should we incorporate that into our <clears throat> just on a more general stage is it okay to incorporate it um if our focus is on cycling how many days can we do those other things right and that's a great question, right? It all comes down to your goals, essentially. Like, how ambitious are you being with your cycling goals? If your goal is just to complete your first Fondo, then you could probably do more of those activities, right? Uh, you're, if your goal is more, I want to race, I'm focused on placing, you're starting to direct a lot more focus towards your cycling, right? So you're going to need uh, more emphasis on that. So it's going to close up your training time quite a bit. Um, and then you have to think... Is what I'm doing on the side helping me towards my goal or is it taking me away? Uh, how important is it to me? So if you really, really love running and, and you're like, look, I have to keep some running in there. It's just my favorite thing in the world. Absolutely, you should do that. Um, again, it's about balancing it so it doesn't affect your training, right? Um, so if you're used to running big distances, maybe you can reduce the volume a little bit um, and reduce the intensity. So do flatter runs or trail runs, something that's soft and easy on you need something that's easy to recover from so that the quality of your cycling training isn't impacted you don't want to take heavy legs just like strength training same thing you don't want to take heavy legs into those days right um, for amateur athletes there is some evidence to show that cross training which includes strength so strength training um doing a little but a running, um, cycle, uh, sorry, swimming would definitely be um, a, a one that I could I could say you could do quite well without impacting your your uh, fatigue too much. Um, is evidence to show that it can be very valuable to your training because it can help you to work on other things that your uh, cycling is and helps you day to day. So if you just feel better generally health wise, that's going to play into better cycling or at least more motivation. Um, at least from a placebo effect, your, your mind will be, you'll have more motivation, you'll be clearer, and your training will improve that way. Um, so again, the principles are the same. Where you put your workouts is really important. So don't put your run the day before a high intensity day, maybe do it afterwards. If, if cycling is the most important thing, then it's not necessarily a terrible thing to be running on tired legs versus cycling on tired legs. Um, and then scale those workouts proportionally. So if we don't want to cause too much fatigue, run in a way that you know you're going to be able to recover from really quickly. Now swimming, that if you, if you use that as an aerobic type swimming activity where you're just doing like uh, lower intensity and just doing like, uh, I don't know enough about swimming to make any recommendations here, 
but if I'm using the same principles of cycling, if you're doing like a 60 to 90 minute sort of uh, swim routine where the intensity is around or slightly above zone one, I don't think it's going to impede um, your training that much, right? Still your cardiovascular system is not putting too much stress through the muscles. Not to say that swimming is stressing for anyone who's a swimmer out there. Please don't attack me. Uh, I know that swimming can be very taxing, but swim in a way that's going to facilitate your recovery. So um, I don't know if any, anyone out there is familiar with Richie Port. Richie Port's a um, uh, rider for BMC, and he's a, a Grand Tour uh, rider in Tour de France. Uh, he's their their lead rider. He does a lot of swimming, especially in the off season. He does he does it in the off season because it helps to build his base miles without increasing his fatigue. He uses it almost as a um, fatigue reducing, facilitating activity. So that's really really cool, really unique. Um, I think there's a lot of valuable things that you can learn from that. So like swimming can teach you good breathing techniques and how to pace. So in terms of pacing tools, that's great. Imagine applying the same breathing stroke or mechanism that you're doing in the pool while you're doing a freestyle to climbing up a hill. And you can imagine uh, what kind of effect that would have for a rider. It would probably have some very beneficial things in teaching them pacing and getting enough oxygen while they're riding. So yes, cross-training um, could definitely work there, but be careful how you do it. So maybe right now, this time of season, if you're aiming to peak, only one other day is dedicated to cross-training. In the off-season, maybe you can do two trail runs or a run and a swim and, uh, and still have two, two, three good riding sessions in there as well. So just think about what phase you're in and what your goals are. How important is it to you perform on your bike? If it's really important, then we need to get a bit more specific. Most of your training should be on the bike. Fantastic. And I think we're going to save the next question, which was going to be about rest for another day, because I think we can probably get a lot into that. And I know that there's a lot of different things we can look at to kind of indicate that. So in the interest of time, we'll save that for next week. And Merrick, let's let's bring Merrick into the conversation. So Merrick, I, you, I know you have a long experience in endurance sports. And um, so I was hoping you might be able to just talk a little bit about your Grand Fondo experiences and some that were uh, particularly memorable. And then we'll get into your question about um, strategizing for, for pacing a Grand Fondo. Great, thank you very much. It's great to be on the um, Coach's Corner this week. I've been enjoying them so far and hopefully people enjoy this one as much. So I got into Fondo style racing about 40 years ago. It wasn't called Fondo back then. But I was living in Cape Town at the time, and somebody had this wise idea that he should actually get people involved in cycling that weren't cyclists. So these people that recreationally used to cycle around, they organized an event called the Argus Cycle Tour. It was sponsored by the local newspaper, and it went around the um, Cape Peninsula, a total of 104 kilometers. That race has now grown into quite an epic they get about 40,000 people doing, doing it. I think Paul may have done it himself since he was in South Africa at one point, and maybe a, a Loma's destination race at some point. Anyway, this here picture that you should be seeing is of me starting the race in 1980. So I'm on a steel frame bike, which has all of 10 speeds, two, two cogs up front and five at the back. That was state of the art then. 
you'll notice very few people are wearing any type of helmet. We all seem to have about one water bottle and no nutrition on our bikes, but we still manage to get around in about 30 to 35 kilometers per hour. This was not supposed to be a race, but of course, as with Fondos, people did start to race. My tactics at the time used to involve taking off up the first hill, which was about four or five kilometers, as fast as possible to get with as fast as possible a group as you could. The next 20 kilometers went along a highway that kind of winds its way. And if you're in a group of 40 or 50 people, you can just zip along at 40 kilometers an hour without even trying. And then the roads start to get a little narrower, hills start to go up, and inevitably you'll drop off the back of the groups at some point when somebody puts in a surge, and then you're stuck in no man's land, out of breath, and the rest of the race can be awfully painful. So the question out of all of that is, if I want to race to Whistler in the Whistler Fondo, for example, and get there as fast as possible, how do I figure that out? What group do I go with? How do I avoid going with so slow a group that I'm pulling them and they're getting all the benefit of me versus going out way too fast up Taylor Way and blowing up as you go through Squamish and, and really crawling into Whistler? Paul, any ideas? A really interesting and complex question. Uh, it'd be like asking me to go to the casino for you and uh, try and pick the winner. I guess what, what you're talking about is tactics. Um, you'll kind of learn those as you get more experience because you need to see things play out and then decide what tactics to adopt to do that. So there's no one particular way. So I know you're looking for a black and white answer here and I don't really have one. But we'll talk about what you did and like what would have been a better tactic um, and how to spot other, other things um, that may help your riding too. One thing that's been a repeated theme with our riders who tend to feel like they could have done better, uh, when I have chats with them, they tend to say the same thing that you did, did is that they went out too hard in the start. They tried to grab onto a really fast group. We all get caught up with that concept of, I need to get into a fast group. Um, now, I would say it's, it's something like our whistle fondo. It is really important to, to do, uh, or sorry, to, to get help from a group of some sort because there's so much riding to do. Uh, so sharing the load is super important. But my, my question is, do you want to finish strong or do you want to start strong? Because you kind of have to pick one or the other. So my guys, uh, King of the Mountain guys, who are pretty strong guys, their egos are pretty high. Um, and some of the caliber of riders in the West of Fondo are elite one, two, semi-professional North Americans. But seeing as they're at the top of my group, they think they can hang with anybody. And from last year's uh, Fondo, when we go up Taylor Way, it's basically like an explosion. Like people are going way over uh, their abilities to just stay with a front group. And a handful of my riders did the same thing. They're like, oh, if we can stay with these guys, we'll be with the strong guys and we'll be able to, uh, to, to be faster this year. So they, they dug really deep for Taylor Way and went well beyond their own abilities, managed to stick with the front group for a little bit, but because of how hard they went at that point, they were never able to fully recover. 
by the time they got to the next hills, Britannia Beach and Furry Creek, well, they had really blown their matches. And that's really um, a, 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 a thing to think about is we always hear people say that is like, oh, how many matches did you burn? Or, did, you know, watch out for going too hard. You're going to burn too many matches. Each of us inherently has a, a match box full of like climbing legs, if you will. And you only get so many. So where do you want to spend those? For me, I'd rather spend them at Brackendale or closer to the finish line because that's where I'm going to make the most difference in terms of placing. If I'm struggling to get up Brackendale because I've burned all my matches at the start, well, that's my race is starting to go backwards very quickly. So knowing yourself and managing your energy, you can go pretty hard up tail away, but you can't dig super deep. So as you guys are starting to learn about your training and you're starting to learn about um, percentages of FTP and things like that, you'll start to know what you can do and how long you can do it for and how many times you can do it. So if you notice um, the C group workouts that we've been giving, they're slightly um, easier than some of the other ones, but I've gradually progressed how many repetitions they're doing on their hill climb. So they went from three to four and some of them are now five. So it's starting to match the other groups. And that's really important, being able to repeat the same effort over and over. So once you can do that, um, then you know if you're doing, say, 130% FTP, you're not going to be able to do that for very long. So if you're doing higher than that on the base of Taylor Way, well, guess what? you still got 110 kilometers of riding to do. So you might want to scale that back and save some of those matches. A little trick you can use, though, if you want to try to stay with the, the main group without... Uh, with without burning matches is doing something called sag climbing so alex and i have talked about this a few times so let's say you're get out of stanley park you're with the front group gradually make your way to the front of the group even if you feel like you have no place being at the front okay so you make your way to the front where it's easy to do so don't burn any matches just try and use other riders draft your way up when you're close to the front as you get to tail away you allow yourself to drop towards the back of the group slowly using your own energy management uh, practices to get there. So I will limit myself to say 120% of my FTP. So I won't climb over 400 or so watts. As I fall back, I start to drop towards the back of the group, but I never leave the group. The guys at the front are putting out considerably more power than me because they're moving past me but I'm not and I haven't lost the group and hopefully I'm still with them as we get onto the highway exit. That way I save my matches, I'm still with the fast group and I can work with them, right? Fantastic. Now, if I'm with that group and we start to draft and I'm still, so using your threshold numbers, so if you've tested your FTP, if you're riding close to your FTP or above your FTP while you're in the group, that group is too strong for you. You're just going to blow up. You just have to kind of recognize that and let the next group come through. You have to find a group that helps you manage your energy. You shouldn't be going over your limit to stay with a group. That is going to really blow you up and you're going to have a slow fall over time. So that's kind of what happened to my guys. They reached too deep. They were in a group that was a little bit too advanced for them. And they ended up with a slower Fondo time last year than the previous year, even though they were fitted this time around. So knowing your abilities, knowing how to uh, recognize when a group is just right for you. Now, something that you, you sent us in the notes, Merrick, was like, uh, how do you make sure that you're in a group that's not 
too easy or drafting. Well, I would, I would say that is still a better scenario than writing by yourself because I've been in that situation a couple of times and the next group isn't that far away. So if you're the strongest climber in that group, you can just use that group to save your energy to the bottom of the next climb and catch the next group up, right? But in a race like Whistle Fonda, the race really doesn't start until after Squamish. So how I would pace it is do your best to conserve as much of your FTP as possible until you get to Brackendale. So if you don't have to climb harder than you need to, don't. Um, if you don't have to be in a group that's faster than, than you can go, don't do that. Because once you get to Brackendale, you see everyone who's overreached goes out the back door. And that's when you start, the, the, the drafting effect is very limited um, and your energy reserves are really important at that point. Okay, so if you're high energy you, and you've managed your energy well, you'll catch multiple groups on Brackendale and pass that. And you, there are sections after Brackendale where you can really work with a group of four or five people and uh, make your way back on. Last year, for example, I got dropped from the lead group um, just after Brackendale because I expended a bit too much on Ferry Creek and Britannia Beach trying to, trying to keep up with these uh, young lads or semi-pros. But a group of six of us formed after Brackendale and we worked together and we caught back onto the lead group and we finished with them. So we were still able to, to catch them later on, but we all had to recognize we were out of our league at that point and we needed to work together to make that happen. So if we had tried to chase them, chase the lead group down as individuals, we never would have made it. So. Okay. Thank, thank you. I think my takeaways from that are learn, learn your power levels yeah. and, and stick to them probably. Yeah. Yeah, I suspect the second thing is practice. You know, enter, enter lots of fondos and you get more experience and you'll have bad ones and good ones and you know, make sure your bad ones are on the unimportant ones and your good ones are on the important ones. Absolutely. Yeah, practice makes perfect, right? So and there's, a, there's a lot of cool little practical things you can do. So you can, you can mimic your Furry Creek and Britannia Beach uh, efforts. So go back to your Whistler Fondos past, see how long those climbs were, and um, try to see if you can match those efforts and those durations and see how many times you can do that, right? That will be a good tester for you. And then doing rides where you try not to pedal Oh, sorry, try not to coast or unclip and take unnecessary breaks for the same amount of time you intend to do your whistle following. Because just building up that endurance can be uh, really important. For, if you don't have to stop, that could save you 10, 20 minutes on your fondo time right there. So, yeah. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you so much, Merrick. Uh, it's been another great uh, episode, hopefully, of Coach's Corner. And, uh, Paul, I'll see you again next week. And, Merrick, I'll see you out on the road. Yep, Thank perfect. You. Thank you very much. Good to see you, Mary. Bye. Take care, guys.